With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. First came the global scramble for personal protective equipment. Now, the aftermath. It's washing up on shores around the world. That's just part of the extraordinary rise in plastic waste that lockdowns have been driving. And South Koreans love bullfighting. Not the Spanish kind, but a frequently bloodless bovine face-off. Animal rights activists have a real beef with the practice, but fans aren't cowed. When the crowds can return, they're sure to lock horns again. First up, though. Over the weekend, several American states hit new daily highs for coronavirus cases. Florida, South Carolina, and Nevada all reported record levels as the national total surged beyond two and a half million. The Trump administration continues to assert that increased testing accounts for the higher numbers. The data suggest otherwise. Many of the states that had rushed to restart their economies are now the worst affected, and lockdowns are being reimposed. In Florida and Texas, governors closed bars on Friday. Texas Governor Greg Abbott admitted the state had been too quick to reopen. If I could go back and redo anything, it probably would have been to slow down the opening of bars. Yesterday, he said that as many as 5,000 people a day were being admitted to hospitals for treatment. Appearing alongside Mr. Abbott was Vice President Mike Pence. He made an appeal that represents an about-face for an administration that's been flippant about common-sense protections. If your local officials in consultation with the state are directing you to wear a mask, we encourage uh, everyone to wear a mask. And in California, Governor Gavin Newsom ordered bars to close in Los Angeles and six other counties, warning that the virus had not gone away. That is a grand understatement. Case numbers and death rates are rising sharply in America and have been since the beginning of June. John Parker is The Economist's international correspondent. We had thought that America might be following the same route as we saw in Europe, that is to say the pandemic rose very rapidly and peaked in April and had since then has sort of fallen fairly consistently. That hasn't really happened. And now for the past two weeks, it's risen, the caseload has risen about 70%. It's really alarming. So that's the, the, the national picture, but it's, it's not uniform across the country, right? Uh, No, not at all. So the three largest states, most populous, I mean, uh, have seen the sharpest or the the largest rises. That's uh, California, Texas, and Florida. Florida's getting to something like 
just under 10,000 new cases a day, really an astonishingly large number. Houston and Texas in general has emerged as a very bad hotspot. California too. Pretty much all over the states, you see, you know, counties where the case numbers are rising really sharply, more than 75%. But the biggest clusters are in North Florida, East Texas, and uh, at the moment in Northern California. And is the pattern that we're seeing now simply those, those places that were too swift to, to lift their lockdowns? It's pretty clear that there's a connection between the lockdown and the resurgence of cases because the states that began to ease their lockdown earliest are some of the worst affected. And basically, I'm talking about the South here. In contrast, in those areas which have gone slowest on releasing the lockdown in the Northeast are actually, a lot of them are still seeing falling case numbers. New York is, has fallen a long way. It's flat just at the moment, but like R- Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Vermont, they're all seeing falling case numbers. So I, I think there's a general connection, general correlation between states that began to ease their lockdown early and rising case numbers now. Well, certainly the the suggestion from some quarters, not least from uh, the from the White House, is that the the increases in numbers are down to increases in testing. What do you make of that? I don't really buy that. I mean, the the implication of the increase in testing is that the infections that are out there are completely stable, and all that you're seeing is uh, you know we just know more about them. Well. The testing hasn't gone up as much as the case numbers have gone up. So that suggests that that can't be the whole picture. And if it were just the testing, I think you'd probably assume that of those people who are tested, the sort of rate at which people tested positive would remain more or less constant. And we're just having more tests and therefore finding more cases. But in fact, the, the rate of positive tests is rising. In fact, in some places, Louisiana and Texas, I think, the rate of positive tests has more or less doubled. But in a sense, that's an, an, an argument for the, the success and failure of states left to their own devices. Is, is there a sense that this whole situation would have been better if there had been a stronger federal response? In my opinion, yes. Imagine that the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is like the main federal public health agency, uh, imagine that it had been sort of put front and center of the epidemic response in the way that it was, for example, with the Ebola pandemic. It doesn't override the federal system, but the guidance from the CDC, the bully pulpit from the president and from the high-ranking members of the administration and the White House, all those things would have presumably provided much clearer guidance to the states and therefore the state governors would be, you know, more cautious on opening up the lockdown. And if that were the case, it wouldn't mean that everything would be uniform nationally. But, you know, it would be like a magnet underneath a piece of paper. You know, the iron filings would be aligned in a somewhat different direction. So everyone would have been a little bit more cautious than they have been. 
But in addition to to uh, the absence of a strong unified federal response, there is a you know an increasing politicization of this stuff about, for instance, the wearing of masks, and also a, a leadership that is still trying to tell the country that things are great and getting better. I think that you know it's in general bleak in America and worrying, I should say, but it's not bleak and worrying right across the board. And perhaps the best example of that is there hasn't been another New York. New York State had like 400,000 cases nearly. California, which is, you know, a much more populous state, has had less than 200,000. Like everyone, I think, hospitals and doctors are just getting better at treating the disease. We're finding out more about it. We know more, you know, when to intervene, when not to intervene, when to put people on ventilators, you know, when you don't need to. One of the things we're finding, for example, is you, um, we rush to put people on ventilators you know, right away in the early days, whenever we could. But we're not doing that so much now. It turns out not to be necessary. Ventilators are quite dangerous. All that being the case, where do you see things heading from now? Will there be cycles of of lockdowns, do you think? Yes, probably. I mean, the case numbers are so high, I, I can't see it being driven down to, you know, a few hundred cases a day without a major political effort in states uh, and all over the country. The one thing I think I'm sort of a little bit heartened by is the fact that the governors of Texas and Florida were able to reimpose a few elements of the lockdown. I was worried that America would sort of bumble along at these really high levels. It just wouldn't be high enough for politicians to be able to say, there's a terrible pandemic, we've got to react. Well, we have seen them react. And I think that in a world in which the pandemic is so pervasive in America, the ability of a few states to start reimposing elements of their lockdown must count as a good thing. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalize and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. One of the reasons I find so much stuff is because people have been throwing their rubbish into the river for generations, and we still are. Laura Maglum is the author of a book on mudlarking. Mudlarking is when you go down onto the bed of the river and you look around in the mud and the shingle for any objects that have been lost or discarded or dropped and have fallen into the river or eroded from the mud. Once a week, she wanders along the River Thames looking for artefacts past generations have left behind. These objects can date back 2,000 years or more, and they're often the very ordinary and very personal objects that once belonged to past Londoners. 
I found bottles, I've got Roman coins, beads, I've got the ivory chape from the end of a Roman auxiliary soldier's sword. I've been mudlucking now for around 15 years. I've got to know what to expect season by season. At New Year, you find all the champagne bottles from New Year's Eve people have thrown in from the bridges. Then all the old Christmas trees start to float downstream. You get all the sandwich wrappers in the summer when they're all out having their picnics. It really is very seasonal, the sort of things that float down the river. But recently, she's noticed something new washing ashore. There's a definite increase in the latex gloves and the face masks. I've found quite a number of those as well. So the Thames isn't the only place that we are seeing more single-use plastic ending up in the water. It really has become a global phenomenon. Bill Ridgers is The Economist's Asia digital editor. Here in Hong Kong, there's been reports of surgical face masks washing up the beach. The planet really does seem to be awash with pandemic plastic at the moment. When you say awash, are there data from around the world on this? It's very difficult to get hard data at the moment. There's just not much data being collected and it's quite early. The estimated data that we have paints a pretty grim picture. One estimate I saw from a market research firm shows just how incredible the increase in the use of face masks are, for example. So it is estimating that last year the face mask market was a paltry $800 million globally. And this year they're expecting it to grow to $166 billion. I suppose that's understandable because plastic is the way that you protect yourself against COVID-19. We all should be wearing face masks. The health professionals need the suits and the visors and the gloves, but it really doesn't alter the fact that it is going to be a problem for us. And so the principal problem is this kind of personal protective equipment then? That is certainly one of the major drivers, but it isn't the only problem. As we've all been in lockdown, we've also been shopping a lot more. And so all of the figures for the online retailing companies have kind of shot through the roof. And a lot of these products come shrink-wrapped in plastic. This is not plastic which is easily recyclable. This is plastic which comprises sometimes two or three layers of different materials. And that makes it incredibly difficult to recycle. And it's not only that. Think about how many times you've called for a home delivery from a restaurant whilst you've been locked down. All of these firms that deliver restaurant foods have seen massive increases. And every time that you receive a curry in a Tupperware pot or garlic dip for your pizza, this is all extra plastic, which is being produced just as a result of the lockdown. Well, maybe some of the plastic can't be recycled, but surely a lot of it can. That is true, and much of it can be. But the problem is that it is not just the problem of the plastic being produced. We are also becoming less likely to recycle the plastic that can be recycled during the pandemic. For example, there was a figure which came out of Athens, and again, this is only an estimate, but there was a 150% increase in the levels of plastic within the general waste stream. So people, are rather than recycling their plastic, are just sort of throwing it straight into the bin. This could be because people are a little bit more afraid to go out to the recycling bins and to dispose of it properly. There is also, of course, an equally big problem, which is that municipalities during the pandemic have cut back on their recycling services. They're closing their plants because of social distancing and that kind of thing. And as if to prove that there's been this confluence of factors which have played into this problem, COVID-19 has caused a crash in the oil price. Petroleum is the major constituents of the polymers that make plastics. And as the oil price has crashed, it has become a lot cheaper to manufacture plastic. And that has further undermined the incentive to recycle the plastic and to use recycled plastic as well. So the fraction of this that's not being recycled inevitably somehow ends up in the environment. 
Yeah, so it seems like a lot of this stuff is ending up in landfill sites or it is being incinerated. And actually, that may not be such a problem in rich countries because it tends to be dealt with fairly well. It's not ideal, it's much better to be recycled, but as a sort of backup option, it's not the worst thing for it to go into a landfill or for it to be incinerated. But there is a big problem that we'll see coming in poorer countries because their landfill sites tend to essentially be open dumps because plastic is so light, wind and rain just blow it into waterways and it eventually finds itself in the oceans. Incinerators too tend to work pretty well in the rich world, but in poorer countries they tend to be a little bit more shoddy and they can release not just the sort of toxins, the dioxides into the atmosphere which can cause sort of significant health problems, but actually one of the big problems is that the plastic is not incinerated, it's not obliterated, so it ends up as these sort of micro particles and nanoparticles, which again can get washed away and end up in in oceans. Do you think this will likely have a lasting impact on the world's attitude towards plastics, how we deal with plastics? This could be, in fact, the sort of really big problem, I think. There seems to be some preliminary evidence by, for example, the University of Hull. What they're telling me is actually public attitudes are sort of going back to where they were a long time before the pandemic. Some of the people that I've spoken to are very fearful that actually a lot of the year's work of educating people about this problem are going to be lost. Bill, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. It's a heroic contest, or it's a gory spectacle, depending on your viewpoint. In Spain, bullfighting is a performance art and a source of controversy. But Spain isn't the only country where it's popular. In South Korea, there's also a tradition of bullfighting, although in a much tamer form. First of all, there's no matador, and there's not a lot of gore. Nevertheless, Korea's version is controversial too. Now that matches have been cancelled because of COVID-19, there's even more pressure on a faltering sport. Bull and bull fights have been popular in South Korean villages for hundreds of years. Lena Shipper is our sole bureau chief. It's quite a different thing to Spanish-style bullfighting, which is probably what most people know about. It's more like wrestling. So you put the two bulls in a ring... And there's not really any blood drawn. They just sort of lock horns and then eventually one gives up. And it's been in decline for quite a long time because South Korea urbanized very quickly and people moved from the countryside to the city. But in recent years, some rural areas have rediscovered it, mainly as an appealing tourist attraction. So is bullfighting sort of standard entertainment for you? I wouldn't say standard, but the other week I went down to Jinju, which is a city in the far south of South Korea, and that has one of the longest-standing bullfighting traditions in the country. And they built a stadium to revive it about 15 years ago. And by all accounts, it's usually a very popular weekend entertainment there. They have fights usually every Saturday from April to September, and a big national event in October, right at the end of the season. And while I was down in Jinju, I spoke to the head of the local bullfighting association, a man called Mr. Lee. He has 10 fighting bulls himself, but he also breeds them for other owners. And he was very sweet about it. He has a lot of affection for his bulls. You know, he talks about how he makes them homemade porridge with all kinds of nutritious grains in them and sort of lives in very close proximity with them. 
And he usually tours the country with his bulls over the summer because there are other places in South Korea, apart from Jinju, where there are bullfights going on. But it's all been on hold this year. I mean, presumably because of the pandemic. But I mean, that aside, how is bullfighting faring more generally? Yes. So um, the most important reason is COVID-19, because obviously bullfighting involves large crowds of people watching it, being very enthusiastic, shouting, jumping from their seats. But there's a few other issues. So Jinju's bullfighting stadium, even though it's only 15 years old, is in pretty bad repair and it's in pretty dire need of refurbishment. And there's been a local debate about whether they want to do that. And a few local government officials have also raised the question of whether bullfighting is compatible with animal rights. Because even though, you know, it's not like the bull gets killed, the fights do occasionally result in injuries to the bulls. And there are also rumours about the training regimen, which may involve bulls dragging car tyres up hills and being fed soju, which is a local alcoholic spirit, which is not very good for people and probably even less good for bulls. So so the pandemic is, is kind of accelerating a, a decline that was already going on because of these animal rights concerns? I think the pandemic is a convenient excuse for the local government to kick that can of animal rights issues and know how to reconcile those concerns with the interests of the bullfighters themselves down the road a bit, because it's unclear when the pandemic's going to end. And the local government has in principle decided they're going to pay for a new bullfighting stadium um, or repair the old one. But they haven't set a timeline and now they can sort of say, well, look, the pandemic's still going on and this discussion about animal rights is still going on. So it will be a long-term discussion, as one of the officials we spoke to said. In the meantime, hardcore fans are stuck with video reruns of past fights. And you yourself, you'll be watching some of these past glories. I definitely hope I'm going to get to see a real one at some point. Well, here's hoping. Lena, thanks for your time. (laughs) Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary.